Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. So, pop quiz for you, Tim. Okay. I just could do the same thing to you. <laughs> You're going to pop quiz me? Oh, damn. Well, mine I was, was going to pop quiz hot shot you. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot the hot shot part, but uh, yeah, you did. Yeah, you know yeah, what? No, no. You know what? I bet your I bet your pop quiz, I bet your pop quiz is going to be more efficient than mine in terms of getting our discussion started. What's your What's the quiz? I mean, my quiz is not so much trivia as it is uh, your opinion on something. I'm wondering: is this the most? And I say this with all due respect. I think this is a good thing. Is this the most pedestrian action movie ever? Pedestrian, right? Action so. Movie. There's you have no superhuman hero. It's largely based around real people in in one of the more economical modes of uh, transportation. You have a bad guy who doesn't have like a German or a Russian accent. He's not strong. He's not big. There are explosions, but I do think all of this is stripped down and made to make people feel like this could happen to you. Or what would you do if you're riding the bus and this happened to you? Okay, yeah. So in that case, yes. Uh, your initial question had me a little thrown off because I was wondering if you were calling this like a vanilla movie here. Because no, I, no. I, mean, I don't think I it's mean, that. Perhaps literally pedestrian and not pedestrian in the, in the pejorative uh, use. <laughs> yeah. So today, today we're talking about the 1994 movie Speed, directed by Jan DeBont. And yes, Tim, I do think that this is a very pedestrian-oriented film. There is a lot of mm-hmm. scenarios where you feel like you could relate to almost all the everyday passengers on this bus, and even a bit of the heroics from the lead Keanu Reeves, uh, who mm-hmm. plays uh, what's the last name on him? Jack Travern. 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 It, it felt like a really forced, made-up last name. Whatever it was. Oh, it's Travern. Travern. I've been saying Travern the whole time. Yeah. Travin, that's not a real last name. I no. don't believe that. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> it's like half of a last name. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I do think that this movie has that element of, I could be that hero. I, you, mm. When you're watching this, you could see yourself step up into the, the Keanu role almost, even mm-hmm. though he is kind of a super cop. But he, you're right. He no is, superhero. Like he's, he's very determined, but... I think this is a great thing to compare and contrast with something like Die Hard, which I think also purports to have that everyday blue-collar main character in McLean. But he does amazing things, and he does it almost entirely alone. Yes. And I, I, I think they're different flavors of the same thing, and I think this one is far more realistic. Like, the way that they render... Almost all the stunts, except for the bus jump, which doesn't look realistic at all. Let's get that out of the way right now. The bus hits a ramp on that on the end of that highway and really goes for it. I think I think the way that Keanu does stunts, the way that they render all this stuff, they're they're trying to bring it down as much as possible. And I think you know the three acts of it as well. Like you've got the elevator scene, the bus, and the subway. They're all just these things where it's like you ride these every day. What if what if there was a terrorist? What if there was a bomb? Yeah, I think the movie does a really good job of putting these everyday scenarios or creating these everyday scenarios in a way that is believable. It's like right from that opening scene with the elevator where it's just normal conversation, people filing into the elevator. There's like a bit of banter. There's a bit of joking around. Then everything gets very serious and high strung all of a sudden when the bombs go off and release the elevators. 
uh, I, I think it's a tremendous way to set up like this idea of you could be caught in this if you're not in the if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's part of what really gives this movie its edge, right? Is how grounded it feels in so many ways. It still does. It has to have big explosions. It's in the '90s. It's an action uh, blockbuster. But uh, I do, that's just something that stood out to me, especially around the villain. But we can dig into that in a second. Before we do, should really stick to our resolution and, uh, and get some of the paperwork out of the way. So, uh, speed concerns a terrorist that plants a bomb on a bus armed to explode the second it drops below 50 miles per hour. Can hotshot LAPD officer Jack Traven keep the bus at speed, defuse the bomb, and save the innocent passengers along for the ride? Starring Keanu Reeves, Sandra Bullock, and Dennis Hopper, Speed was directed by Jan DeBont and premiered June 10th, 1994. It's available to stream on Disney+, Plus, at least in Canada. It's still weird to me when we have a classic movie like this, and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. it's on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, was it? Was this Fox something? It must have been. They, they bought Fox. It must have been. Like, it's not a searchlight. It's not that kind of prestigious type of thing. Um. I can't. I can't remember who made, but that must be why Disney has has access to it. Yeah, and as you mentioned, there it's a pretty loaded cast for the time. Dennis Hopper was a quite a prestigious actor, mm-hmm. and you got two hot up and comers, Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves. They're calling her Sandy on, on all the in all the behind yeah. the scenes videos, which I thought was pretty funny because I don't think she goes by that at all anymore. She definitely hadn't like locked in her icon persona yet. Yes, right, because like this was her breakout role. Right, hundred percent. That's my understanding. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, we'll we'll get into like you you called Keanu Reeves a hot up and up and comer, and I do want to look at where he's been since we saw him just three years ago in Point Break in our previous episode. But before we do, we should mention that yeah, with that cast, um, with this director who was largely a director of photography before on other action movies, you got a thirty-seven million dollar budget and a three hundred and fifty million dollar box office, which is huge. Yeah. Really, really successful. Very and its successful. tagline, just to get out of the way, the tagline is "Get ready for rush hour," which uh, I don't know, playing to the LA crowd, I guess. Yeah, I, you know, I think so much of this movie actually does play to the LA crowd. I'm glad you mentioned that nice and early in this, because uh, mm-hmm. it's something I want to come back to when we talk about our scene. But there's definitely it, this comes back to that idea of. Oh, like you're a pedestrian, you could be caught in a major action scene someday if you just mm-hmm. hang out in rush hour in LA. This could be you. Uh, so there is that everyday quality again coming back through, and it looks like that's even how they were advertising the film. It'll do okay, I think, in our end of the year rankings. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> um, and, but as oh, go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to come back to the other point you made there too. This is uh, Jan DeBont's directorial debut. He's a mm-hmm. pretty prestigious cinematographer leading up to this point, working with like the likes of Paul Verhoeven. Uh, uh, there's actually a ton of amazing directors he worked with. John McTiernan, uh, who almost mm-hmm. directed this movie, according to you, Tim. Yeah, so they, I mean, this movie had a pretty, it's got a long tail of its production history. It went, its script went through a number of phases, and it went around to a bunch of different studios, and I mean, we'll we'll talk about some of this later, but yeah, I guess the first iteration of the script it was a lot more John McClane, um, the main character, uh, Travin. He uh, was, and that's uh, the main character from Die Hard, by the way, John. McClane. Yeah, sorry, John McClane, played by Bruce Willis in Die Hard. Uh, obviously, highly successful action movie, one of the most iconic uh, from a few years prior, and they 
clearly modeled uh, uh, Keanu Reeves' character Jack after him. He had a lot of like quips and one-liners and was a little bit more screwball, apparently. Um, and Sandra Bullock's character was a paramedic that they wanted to offer to Halle Berry. So it would have made sense that they would have experience driving at high speeds through traffic. Right. Um, but I guess uh, the other thing being that the script was all based around the bus. It was two hours on the bus. And most of the studios they brought it to said, we can't expect people to watch two hours on a bus. You have to add other stuff to it, which is where you get the elevator sequence at the beginning, the subway sequence at the end. Eventually, I guess Joss Whedon was brought on to do some rewrites, and he largely rewrote the character of Traven and all the dialogue, taking out a lot of the quips and making him... There's a quote that I have here that I really like, where they said, it's something about, oh, they they turn him into a determined, polite guy trying not to get everyone killed, which I think also plays more to Keanu's strengths. Um, I do too. We can circle on to that. Yeah. Uh, this is just three years later, and I think he's so much better in this than in Point Break. Yeah, for all the yeah. good that he does do in Point Break. It's so much more of a natural fit. It's not even a close comparison. Yeah, I think Jan DeBont, uh, your editor, um, John, John, uh, Wright. John Wright, and, uh, and, and your writers, when they knew Keanu was attached, I think they all knew what they were working with, much more than uh, Bigelow in Point Break, or maybe Bigelow because he was, he was just earlier in his career, was just trying to see what he could do. I think this is more of a... Um, suited to fit role where he doesn't have to do as much. I think you can still see a couple um, hints of that John McClane style character in that first elevator sequence. There's that whole thing about where he's telling Jeff Daniels character that he would shoot the hostage to neutralize the threat. And they bring that back. And I'm like, that doesn't feel very polite guy trying not to get people killed. That feels more John McClane. Um, yeah, it doesn't match up with the rest of his character very well, now that you say it. But I think because it's the first part of his character that we really get to mm-hmm. grasp onto, we kinda, I kind of lost that feeling that he was that kind of guy as the movie mm-hmm. carries on. He becomes a more stoic, uh, silent hero type as the yeah. movie progresses. He kind of says less as the movie goes on and as he needs to say less to the people on the bus uh, mm-hmm. or even to the antagonist. Yeah, he's largely comes across as like a strong, almost silent type. He's very pragmatic, I think, is maybe the thinking behind that shoot the hostage thing, neutralize the the resource for the terrorist. A man of action, um, too. Yeah, and I mean, as we talked about in the Point Break episode, Keanu has this very unique void of personality or charisma. There's just is there something missing, which is maybe a bit of a rude way to say say it. Again, I'm a big Keanu fan. I think we both are. We both are. But I think this void really lends itself to someone who is just driven to do their job, which I think is what you have in Drac- Jack Traven. Um, he's he's kind of like there. there's nothing supernatural about it, and there's nothing like Maverick. I mean, they call him Hotshot, but there's, I don't think there's anything sort of Maverick or like um, like a like a loose gun uh, style to him, right? Yeah, he doesn't. I think that trend came in a little bit more later in the 90s even mm-hmm. just like the whole loose cannon but we we need him to get the job done kind of idea my daughter is on a goodwill mission on that station there's only one man who can get her out who snow he's the best there is but he's a loose cannon 
Yeah, like it's not McLean, it's not uh, Riggs from Lethal Weapon, but I still believe that like he's gonna immediately do whatever it takes to get this done. He will chase down a bus on foot in traffic. He will um, carjack someone. He'll make it happen, but I, it doesn't have that same flavor as like someone who's gonna forget about the collateral damage and and get the job done, but it's gonna be messy, you know. I also think his character has some stakes, right? In the first scene, they thwart uh, the antagonist. Uh, what's his first name? Sorry, his last name's Payne. Howard, Howard Payne. Payne. Great name for a mm-hmm. antagonist. Um, but <laughs> Howard Payne, played by Dennis Hopper, is thwarted in the opening scene um, by Jack and his partner Harry, who's played by Jeff Daniels. Um, yep. And when he comes, when they find out he's alive again, and when Jack gets the phone call from him saying, You ruin a man's life's work, and you think you can walk away. You got blinders on to the world. But I got your attention now, didn't I, Jack? Why didn't you just come after me? It becomes personal for Jack. It bec- It's not like a matter of saving the day. He says, why didn't you just come after me? This is the first thing mm-hmm. he says. And it's like, why are you targeting innocent people? Now I have to go save all these innocent people. So it's a very noble setup for this character. And I think it follows through on that. I don't think it ever really wavers on that. It's never like, I'm going to do this for me. You never get that kind of moment with this kind of character. He's very consistent. And Keanu plays that really well. Yeah, I don't think his ego is really in it. Yeah, but he's got that part personal stake, that personal responsibility. And I mean, I think this is a good opportunity to talk about Dennis Hopper and Howard Payne. Because um, he does, that sort of becomes the hook in the movie is that he singles out Jack Traven because he cost him his money, right? And I do think maybe, like, you know, my opening question about how pedestrian this is, I think it's largely based around this villain because I find this villain to be so irregular in terms of action movies. Which is why it was r- nice going back and watching this movie, honestly, mm-hmm. after seeing just all these alien or, you know, foreign creations that were meant to be, like, mm-hmm. the formidable opponent to good old American everyday heroes. Uh, I really liked that this guy is an American from the working class system who has been wronged and is coming back for his money that he's owed by the public or he's owed to from the public by the public yeah there's something very regular and sinister about him at the same time because when you see the damage that he can do you know he's dangerous and it kind of makes it even scarier that just you know an ex-cop someone who is slighted at work um i guess it kind of leans into that kind of like going postal kind of stuff which certainly would have been a workplace paranoia at the time um but I, I really like, like, he's got this great Midwestern sort of accent on his voice. I think they say he's he worked in Atlanta, so it's not necessarily what I call, but, like, Taylor, if you got the time in the edit to put in, there's one part where the TV says, like, they call him, like, a deranged madman. And he loves it. And the other people in Jeopardy are, of course, the passengers of the bus held hostage at the whim of a madman. Now, if you've been with us, you've seen the bus. The whim of a madman. <laughs> I like that. Hopper is making fun of it and the way he's saying like madman right he's got that kind of midwest accent you're like you compare it to like Hans Gruber who's like an extremely well-dressed you know German-esque Euro high-class villain who I love like the twist in that movie again is that he's not a terrorist he's an exceptional thief as he's as he puts it but in this like the entire time Howard Payne is like 
there's like this um uh elderly component to his to his personality as a terrorist where he's like this is about me this is about my money this is about money due me which i will collect 3.7 million dollars it's my nest egg jack at my age you gotta think ahead he's like i gotta think about my future this is my nest egg yeah very pragmatic he's like i need three million dollars to live the rest of my life in comfort that's all i need he adds on like a surplus with the second threat i think because of his his time and money right because he says like you cost me like two years of my life like i worked really hard on this and i should get a payday well because there's something very simple and sinister about it yeah he raises the price right because the first hostage Mm -hmm. hostage interaction is only three million and then he makes it 3.7 Almost like as if yeah. to say, that's what that's the time that you just cost me. I'm adding yeah. that to the fee now. It's like and, a fine or a penalty. Yeah. Yeah. And and Keanu says it a couple times that you're crazy or you're a madman throughout the movie. But I feel like even he doesn't fully believe it. He realizes the pragmatism of the of his foe. And that mm-hmm. is what keeps him so alert and on his toes. And that's what makes this, I think, a good head to head. They understand each other pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, there is a thing where, like, you could compare it with the number of movies we have out there, which is, like, someone trying to reason with a madman or a force of chaos, right? Like, the most high-profile version being, like, Batman and Joker, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not what this is at all. These are, like, these are almost negotiations with just, like, you know, a bus full of lives uh, being the the collateral at stake. Um, I like how both, like, slip up, though. Both make mistakes and misjudge mm -hmm. each other, and it it becomes costly for both of them in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think it's just yeah. Going back, it's so refreshing, and and I think it's such a it's a stroke of genius that compared to any type of villain sort of stereotype you could have used at the time, either making them Russian or some European, or um, like uh, some some big strong man. You know, you already had uh, Schwarzenegger in the Terminator movies, things like that. People who can keep up physically with your main hero. It was none of that. It's just a matter of preparation. Right, the guy had been yeah. planning that for two years. He has backup plans. He has contingencies and redundancies, and that's what. And and again, it's going to affect real people in settings that you, as an audience member, are very familiar with, which makes it, uh, I think, very effective. Yeah, I definitely think that's a big contributing factor to its popularity, uh, especially in 1994. Mm-hmm. This has a lot of things going for it as an action movie that just work really well. Uh, but I think it all like everything does come back to the production of this movie too. It comes back to the editing, the shooting, the sound. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I just think none of the stuff that we're talking about right now between the characters works if we don't have such tremendous action in between to kind of balance and show us the stakes, show us the risk that uh, the protagonist Jack has to go through to like uh, counter Payne's maneuvers. Yeah, I hadn't seen this movie in well over a decade. Like, I think too. the last time I watched it was probably like one of those edited versions on TBS, you know, uh, with all the all the profanity taken out. <laughs> right. And I threw it on, and this movie just moves. Its energy, like, it, I'd say it stops just at every act break, which is basically you've got this great elevator sequence at the beginning, which I love any movie where it starts with something that teaches you how to watch the rest of the movie. And I love them putting in this little this little mini movie at the beginning where you meet all your characters, you meet Jack and Harry and Howard. Um, you meet, um, Jack's, uh, commanding officer who is played by miles Dyson from T2, 
Um, I'm sorry to that actor. I'll find his name right now. Joe Morton. Big fan of Joe Morton. Um, you meet the whole cast. You understand exactly how dangerous the villain is and exactly how capable the heroes are. So that by the time by the time he calls him and tells him about the bus, you know everything you need to know. And the movie can be an hour of bus action before it takes one more pause prior to the subway sequence. Yeah, and even the time on the bus is broken up pretty nicely because the movie does set up Harry, who's played by Jeff Daniels once again, who's at mm-hmm. like headquarters. He's at police headquarters kind of coordinating everything. Mm-hmm. And it's not just him talking on the phone to Keanu. He is actually accomplishing something. Like we see him kind of see like looking through blueprints of bombs and previous thing and yeah. previous techniques but used by other bomb uh what are, what are people who do bombs called? Bomb technicians, bomb like technicians? experts, I don't um Yeah. So Bomb Squad members, right? And and yeah. I like that like Harry does realize like oh, this is like someone like me when I realize like he knows as much about bombs as I do. And then they and the gold watch thing being the hint. He's like, "Oh, we gotta look through past cops, right?" Yeah, and funny enough, like there. So we're, we're talking a lot about how this movie kind of moves and how it's nicely set up, but there is like a level of cheese in this movie too. Like mm-hmm. in that opening elevator scene, there's like this kind of macho conversation, or like almost like a jaded macho conversation between Harry and Jack, where they're like, "Tell me again, Harry." Why did I take this job? Oh, come on. 30 more years of this, you get a tiny pension and a cheap gold watch. Cool. And it's like, wow, like, they're really... That's like a low blow out of nowhere here. But then it all comes back to this idea where, like, I think it's Harry who says, yeah, you get, like, this dinky gold watch, though. Yeah, and it, it plays into the info they get later, right? Where you realize, why is he using a bad gold watch as a timer when there's so many more effective ones? And it's because um, Howard Payne, because we haven't covered this yet, lost his thumb in an accident while he was working, and all he, he's, he claims all he got out of it was the retirement watch and no compensation, mm-hmm. which is why he's you know coming up with this elaborate scheme to blow up buses and elevators. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's largely, you know, a number of the ways that they get one over on Howard Payne are through those little ways that his ego leaks Yes, through, yes. Right? Because, again, a, if he didn't use classic. a gold watch, it may have taken them way longer to figure it out, right? But, obviously, he still, even no matter how pragmatic he is, how, how well thought out everything is, he gives these little hints of his personality away because, it, I mean, it's that very common thing that, like, these... These villains, these terrorists, they still, they want some recognition. They, like, it's not just about the money. He also has to make sure people understand how he was wronged, even though that, that helps lead to his downfall and also to Harry's death. Yes. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it's back, like, it's back and forth underestimating each other, right? Harry underestimates the whole scenario, which you can kind of see as soon as, like, Harry and the team kind of find the location of Payne or his house. Mm-hmm. You're kind of like, oh, they're not mm-hmm. being very careful going in there yeah i i I wouldn't rush a house of a of a known explosives f yeah i don't think that that they would teach you how to do that (laughs) i don't think that's how they would teach you how to do it today (laughs) i think feel like you send you send in your little bomb robot first because it literally looked like a like a light sensor catches them when they Mm -hmm. walk into the main room of his house and then obviously jeff daniels his character goes bye-bye yeah 
I suppose um, uh, before we jump into the scene, one other thing to talk about is just Sandra Bullock, sure. right? Because this kind of made her into a star. I do think and some other points about the, sh- the script's production. So earlier, yeah, they wanted a paramedic. It was going to be played by Halle Berry or Halle Berry type. They didn't go with that. For a little while, they were going to go much more comedic. And it was going to be a driving instructor, um, which is very on the nose. Uh, but, like, not as a a romantic interest either so they were looking at offering it to like ellen degeneres um which That's a different uh, movie. would have been a completely different movie yeah yeah i mean same with halle berry to an extent i think i kind of like where they landed where like again i think it leans in the pedestrian aspect like what if what if you were called up what if you had to be the one to drive the bus what if you got your license right? and revoked she... and had to start taking yeah. the bus <laughs> Which I think that's the right level of joke for Me it too. too. That she's like, I have to, I have to tell you, my license was revoked. He's like, what for? And she's like, for speeding. And it's like, well, perfect, right? Like, it's a great edit to the end of that scene. Like, they just cut yeah. after that. E- even um, uh, Keanu saying for what was not what I expected him to say to her saying that. And mm-hmm. that's just once again a good character moment because you're like, oh, of course, like he's a he's a Boy Scout kind of cop. He's gonna ask that first. He wants to make sure that she didn't, like, murder someone with a car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will say personally, I don't really get the Sandra Bullock thing. I mean, you know, I missed... Like, the, the craze? In general. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she yeah. it's overhyped. Like, if you didn't... If you're not, like, a fan of the blind side, I don't know what else you'd be a fan of her in. She was huge in Miss Congeniality, which I, to be fair, I haven't seen. But I also okay. Tay's Tay's given a, a thumbs yeah, down. That movie's mad. Uh, not not good for an audio podcast. Sorry, but, uh, I was just so I'm you, not like, sure I stings. really get it. No, yeah, yeah, it's all good. Um, but uh, I mean, I think she does have she. I think her chemistry with Keanu works in this, which is. But key. I think it's. Like, I do think the like the, the romantic subplot as it comes to fruition doesn't really mean anything to me i don't feel like anything's achieved or won it's just kind of like okay like but don't but don't you think that it worked for the mass audience because it's like oh yeah i'm sure that was that was cathartic people and then she's like i guess we're gonna have to base it all on sex Mm -hmm. and then it's kind of like i mean okay sparks are flying now (laughs) it's it's not a bad script i mean that's that joss whedon coming through um you know canceled or not uh, a pretty good script doctor. a little bit more risque um, in those kinds of ways than i thought it was going to be or than most action movies of mm-hmm. this kind would be today yeah and there's still like there's a fair amount of language yeah. right it does have that 90s thing where they're like well as long as there aren't sex scenes like this is a this is a pg-13 like kids one movie, one f-bomb fine. though right <laughs> yeah um yeah that's from pain n- no it's from keanu when he's looking, oh well, then there's okay, more than so one. The, so, see, yeah. so maybe I miss her. I didn't hear the pain one because I thought the joke was that they're sticking to one f bomb. And when Keanu looks under yeah, the bus, we... he's relaying back to uh, Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh yeah, and Alan Ruck because he's he's a Midwestern yokel won't repeat the. the so profanity. I thought that was the joke because Keanu yeah. says the f word, and then he's yeah. supposed to be repeating everything and he doesn't repeat it. So I thought, oh, okay, so that's them making a joke about keeping one F word in the movie. But if you say pain says it too, then I guess we, scrap my whole theory. Yeah. Well, we should note uh, just for context there, cause uh, we're talking about something that maybe not everyone knows in PG 13 movies, you get one F bomb and it cannot be used in a sexual context. Yes. Right. 
So that's what they can kind of get away with. So whenever you're watching a PG-13 movie or when you realize you only heard one F-bomb, you can kind of see where they had to pick their battle. And they're like, where is it going to mean the most or where is it the funniest or where is it going to underscore someone's anger or pain? Um, And that's usually where they put it. But yeah, this one I had just noted because I realized after like 12 minutes that like this movie had a lot of 90s action style toxic masculinity in the dialogue. So you have pain at a certain point when he realizes that harry and jack are in the elevator shaft he says don't f with daddy right um which really stood out in my mind because then you also like you've got jeff uh jeff daniels harry uh saying saying something about oh he couldn't hold his wad (laughs) and one of the guys on the bus when when keanu finally makes it on the bus as we're about to talk about he says that guy's really got a hard on for this bus man sure has a hard on for this bus there's a lot of just like stuff where you're like does everybody just talk like that in this world? Hey, people people right? said hard yeah. on in the 90s, Tim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it was the 90s. We didn't, you know, it was it was before the fall. <laughs> but um Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's everything I I got to say before we dive into the scene uh where we can really talk more about um cinematography um and the energy of uh, of this movie that sort of just once you start watching, you don't stop watching. Yeah, so just before we do fully jump in, I'll lead into it here, but I had the same note that you already said, which is that this movie moves, meaning like the whole mm-hmm. first half hour of this movie just feels like it's its own action movie almost. It mm-hmm. It is broken down to introduce the characters, create a relatable story uh, that sucks you in, and then also gives you enough action and satisfaction to hook you and like get your juices flowing, get your adrenaline up, mm-hmm. and then we yeah. kind of and this is before the main the or this is before the central plot even really kicks in, and so our scene mm-hmm. today is kind of where this begins. It's Keanu, or sorry, it's Jack's getting to the bus. So mm-hmm. uh, this is going to be my shortest summary that I've ever done. Yeah. <laughs> um, the scene goes from 34.16 to 40.15, so it's a six-minute scene. Um, after receiving word about a bomb on the, a public transport bus, Jack steals a car in order to track the bus down. And I figured if I went any longer than that, I would just be explaining the whole scene, so that's the summary. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, we can just dive into the scene. Like some of the other ones that we've done in the past, we're largely just going to be describing the sequence of action and then sort of talking into how it works and why it works. Um, but it just sort of give you more context in your mind. This is where, you know, Jack in Venice, the other bus is blown up. Howard Payne calls him, gives him the information about sort of the, the, uh, the ransom. And then, uh, uh Jack hops in his, uh, it looks like a Bronco to me, but, uh, you know, some, something in that style and, uh, chases down the bus, gets blocked off by traffic. And that's sort of where we start. He has to get out of his own car, chases the bus down on foot. And that's where he first sort of makes contact. And obviously the bus isn't going to let him on on the highway. Uh, I think Sam literally says, so Sam's the bus driver. He literally says, this is not a bus stop. Which he's Um, already said once, too. So he's got, yeah. So he's, Jack's sort of like pounding on the window, I guess. When he breaks the window, that was an accident and they kept it in. Which lends itself to one of the things you put in the notes. An issue you had with it. I actually have a lot of issues in this first minute yeah. of the scene, and then the rest of the scene is yeah. great. Uh, so when he gets out of the car, he's chasing the bus down, and he's just like, you know, like the thump thump on the on the driver door, like, hey, I I want to get on the mm-hmm. bus, let me on, and the bus is like driving away, and then 
he realizes it's not going to stop, and he, like, hits it a little extra hard, and I don't think the glass is meant to break there. I really don't. They say it was an accident on oh, set. Oh, they did. Like they, it, wasn't, it wasn't intentional. That, okay. Yeah. That's what, that's what research showed because, me. Because, yeah, then it, the rest of the scene, that pane of, in the window is not broken until the end of the scene. Mm-hmm. So they did figure yeah. out continuity after, but it, the shot of Keanu hitting the glass and it breaking must have been something they shot mm-hmm. later. And or after the whole, yeah. you know, wide of him chasing the bus something to add continuity or it, i mean who knows how the different buses were used i do know there were 11 of those buses yes. involved in the production yeah. of this right you know four or five of which were blown up yeah yeah one of which was cut in half to allow filming inside i'll, I'll see if i can um, find the audio cue but i have the behind the scenes of speed i uh, found on youtube yeah. and jan de bont in there he's like and some of them were just a couple to blow up. You just blow them up, or like, like they scrapped one entirely going over that that uh, that break in the highway. Yeah, right where it didn't work at you all. Saw, did you watch behind um, the scenes on that? But, though, just to do a side tangent, I watched some of it because yeah, yeah, the, yeah. it was like yeah. a legit stunt, and the bus just didn't go anywhere. Like, but they they yeah. did well, all the I mean, prep for it. But I guess it. the I I had read that the final time they did the jump. Um, they over the bus overshot what they thought it was going to do and it landed directly on a camera oh. and just destroyed that camera but they had one way further away that caught it because the first time the bus didn't go far enough they got a, a stunt driver yeah, in the bus yeah. every time which is insane. did you see the rig they had right? in, in the like suspension rig? in like a floating yeah. rig yeah to keep him off yeah. the seat and uh limit limit his spinal damage which was a normal thing at the time for yeah, this type spinal of stunt. compression yeah yeah imagine that being a part of but, uh, your job anyway workplace hazards yeah. oh you might get a bit of spinal compression today so we're gonna put you in a Just harness to suspend you. And, and fighter pilots uh. yeah uh so sorry so yeah they break the glass there's some continuity errors you noticed another thing in that yeah uh, that is another sort of filming error which i had to go back and you saw it for. though you got a better eye for that than i do yeah, yeah it's I it. it like i saw it the first <laughs> time and i was like he's not wearing sunglasses in this scene and <laughs> Well, the guy's wearing a yeah, hat, and a too. Hat. He just looks... So, yeah, Taylor's talking about he, you can see a crew member in the reflection of the window when you're from Jack's perspective looking at the bus during this part of the The sequence. funny thing is that the bus is... a guy in sunglasses and a hat, like, jogging very slowly. The funny thing is the bus looks like see, it's moving pretty see quick, how the but speed is being cheated. The, yeah. the, the person in the reflection does not look like they're moving too quick, so you really get a gauge of how slow it's moving. And it's it's for, it's a good it's a good gauge on the yeah, cheat yeah. that play right because this guy is like casually sidestepping it's and, very and funny then you know so those are those are production errors and I understand maybe like you just didn't get the continuity right for the glass door and you know accidents happen with reflections reflections are really hard I'm not hating on the movie for these things but they're like just in sequence then right after this he's running alongside the bus and can't get his badge out of his pocket. Which is, like, mm-hmm. how many times would you normally have to, like, that's kind of like your thing, right? You're a cop. You should be able to get your badge out of your pocket pretty quick, you'd think. You you would think so. That's a little bit of, like, the the movie's working hard to tell you why he can't get on the bus there. Yes. Because the next part has to happen because the next part is very cool. And that's the only but, reason. But even if he got it out at like the end and like hit it on like the back of the bus a little bit, but he doesn't he doesn't even get the badge yeah. out until after the bus is gone. And I was like, it took you like forty seconds to get your badge out of your pocket. And uh mm-hmm. so that the whole initiating part of the scene 
there's like some little issues I have with it. The biggest one being the badge, though. I just don't. I'm like, what is what is happening in this moment? Like that he can't get their yeah, attention. Yeah, like the broken glass. Yeah, the broken glass and the reflections, like that stuff happens. And to be, you know, on, in, to their credit, I didn't see the reflections. The reflections, so whatever. Probably a good number of people don't because it's pretty yeah, fast. But it, it is on there um, for and, one to two seconds. I will say it is longer than mm-hmm. what I would have guessed they would keep it on screen for because they yeah. didn't need to. I think if listeners haven't watched it yet and you were going to watch the movie after you listen to the episode, you'll you'll be able to see it. Right. Like once you know it's there, it's there. But that's sort of how these things go. You can't go and do a reshoot. You know, you've blown up all your buses. You know, your budget's run out. So you got you got to keep yeah. moving on. There, I feel like there's just something in the edit that could have done around the break in the wind in the window. Because I don't think they needed mm-hmm. that moment of impact where he breaks it the first time. I really don't think they needed that. Yeah. So that's all I want to say about ripping on the movie. I don't <laughs> mind ripping on movies, but I I actually like this movie. I just found a lot of issues in that opening part of our scene today. Mm-hmm. So then the next part, this leads to sort of the reason I suggested we cover this. I really love this next sequence where they're the next component of the sequence where he has to try to get on the bus, but his own car is back behind a traffic stop or uh, sorry, uh, is back behind traffic on the highway. So, he starts trying to wave down the cars that are immediately behind the bus, and like the first two or three swerve around him. And then he gets directly in the way of this little convertible, and uh, and goes up and tries to sort of, you know, extra legally commandeer the vehicle as a police officer. And you've got this guy inside uh, whose name I'll look up. Because I'm not sure that... Uh, so Glenn Plummer plays Jaguar owner. Um, I'm going to call him yeah, Tune Man because that's his, that's his license plate. Uh, the guy, I love it because the guy immediately assumes it's some form of like police profiling. Yeah, this is my car. I own this car. It's not stolen. It is now. Move over. Um, something racially charged uh, thinks that he's being blamed for stealing Which worked really well, I thought, actually. You know what? For the context of the scene, I was like, you know what? Yeah, I don't think it would be as accurate in an L.A. movie, at least even from a global perspective or from our perspective as Canadians, uh, if someone didn't make a comment on that. And then, uh, yeah, he says something, two men says something in effect, like, I didn't, this car isn't stolen. And Jack uh, draws his weapon and says, it is now. And I love, like, when I was watching it and there was a lot I had forgotten, it's like, why didn't the guy get out of the car? Because the guy just sidles over into the passenger seat. Jack gets in the driver's seat and takes off after the bus. He didn't get out of the car because you need him for the next aspects of this. And one of the reasons I really love the sequence is that Toon Man, no proper name. uh, He's only in the movie for about six minutes, tops. uh, Has, like, a full arc. Right, you can track track how this guy changes over the course of his time in the car with Jack, and I think it's pretty. Now, neat. did you notice him before the scene started? Because he is in it for a second. Oh yeah, no. So I didn't. when Jack is pulling up to the traffic, he speeds by a tune man who's already frustrated with traffic in front of him, and yeah. you just see his license plate really quick, and you see tune man in the car with his arms in the air, kind of freaking yeah, out a little yeah. bit, and then it's then you meet introduce you're introduced to him two minutes later, which is pretty fun. I mm-hmm. I only saw that, that is, second that time neat. around watching the scene that he's actually in it a bit before. Yeah. And a brief aside to 
what I guess is considered to be maybe the worst sequel of all time, Speed 2. Why are, ooh, we're bringing 4% this up. on Rotten Tomatoes. Just because Toon Man's in. No. Um, I guess. So Toon Man is driving a boat, piloting a boat that is like, again, like boat jacked, like commandeered by Sandra Bullock and whoever is playing her new boyfriend. In Jason Patrick. Bullock came back for Speed 2. Yeah, but uh, Keanu did not come back for he Speed He was going too. so, so I guess their joke. Yeah, I guess their joke is that Toon Man in this one is is piloting his boat, and he even gets that taken from him. Um, so I mean, good for Plummer, you know, make that money. But uh, I like I like the arc in this because essentially, if you're going to break it down very quickly, he goes from assuming that he's being racially profiled and possibly about to be abused uh, to reluctantly giving up his car, to being scared of Tra- uh, Travin's driving, to being impressed by Travin's driving, to actively helping Travin. And then and then crashing and surviving miraculously. That crash like just the fact he's got no seatbelt on, I was like, oh man. That's a that's a rough like he stunt that they didn't if, depict. If right. he had a seatbelt on, he would be he would be really yeah. hurt. But um, yeah. Sorry, we're 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 jumping ahead a little bit. But essentially, yeah, he reluctantly gives up the car, and like you know, Jack is speeding. He's driving very dangerously, trying to catch up to the bus, and uh, Toon Man's freaking out. And then like, there's there's a couple sequences where I think you've got a nice, arguably medium shot. You've got the full car in it. You can see that it's uh, Keanu and Plummer. You've got you've got Jack and uh, Toon Man in view. And they have Keanu pull some different driving maneuvers. They're not—they're nothing crazy, but like he's swerving around other traffic. I'm sure they're not going as fast as they feel like they're going in it. But there's some impressive work where you have Keanu driving, and one of those, he avoids a slower car, and Toon Man sort of comes around to his side. He's like, "Hey, that's a nice yeah, move. Yeah. You know, actually, this is impressive. Now I'm having uh, fun." Um, uh, which I which I think is great. And then uh, as he gets more impressed, they finally catch up to the bus trying to yell at the bus driver and talk to him. Keanu pulls up, or Jack pulls up in front of the bus to sort of track the speed, which I love is like a little maneuver to make sure he's staying above 50. And uh, you get Toon Man has to write a note that says there's a bomb or bomb on bus, right? And I love they even apply like the action movie anxiety to that where he's like, write it, write it, write it. Like he's telling you, he has to write it so quickly. And even something as simple as writing a note can be like life or death. That part of it was that we do feel that moment of intensity because we understand the scenario. We understand that if the bus, once the bus passes 50 miles an hour, it can't dip back below. And so we get these great close-up shots throughout the scene showing both speedometers of the bus and Keanu's car, or I guess Plumber, like Toon Man's car. The Jaguar. Um, But we get a nice cross comparison with those those shots. Um, But once we see the bus crest 50 miles an hour, then we... Instant, at least me as an audience member started instantly fearing it dipping below so the mm. fact that Keanu is on him to be like yo write the note write it now write it write it write it is mm-hmm. like it fits that moment of intensity for me at least in that in that scene because there is so much on the line and I think it takes a minute for Keanu to even realize because there is that moment where he he sees okay we're above 50 
but then it takes him a second to realize that he's slowing the bus down by being in front of it and freaking yeah. them out. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot of great tension with that. Yeah, it just keeps ratcheting it up, and one of the one of the best tools and one of the key ones in the sequence, but best tools for a for a a DP, and I mean, as we said, Jan DeBont was a DP, and now he's directing. So I think the movie is shot super well. Uh, is you have these insert shots, right, of the different speedometers, and also of the uh, the bomb arming, right, yep. where he goes over fifty, it cuts down to the bomb, the red light comes on. All these like one second shots top that tell you everything you need to know and keep you invested and make sure you understand the stakes at play. Yeah, so um, the speedometers work differently because they are actually being seen by the characters that's in play, which are at this point Sam mm-hmm. the bus driver and Jack driving the Jaguar. So those are actually mm-hmm. like character character perspectives. When we get the bomb, yeah. that. So when we, when we get like a totally observational shot, which is under the bus and the camera kind of moves up nicely to the bomb and then the light triggers on it to change mm-hmm. color, indicating that it's active now. This is for us. This is for the audience. This isn't a character's perspective. Yep. This isn't like Dennis Hopper's like realizing how his bombs turned on. No, it's none of that. This mm-hmm. is just information deployment. And I think for a movie like this, this works really well. Uh, I think... It's in my notes here, but Payne delivers the er, when Payne calls Jack right before the scene and kind of tells him, "This is how this is what I've set up. This is what's going to happen to the bus and go." It's very quick, yeah, very abrupt, and real in a realistic way. He's very it's very chaotic over the phone. So I like yeah, that I'm... setup, but I do think the audience could use more hints and more help. Uh, especially for mm-hmm. a major blockbuster film where you're trying to have a very general audience structure. And mm-hmm. so having observational shots like where it's just like literally panning up to the bomb trigger, which is from green to red or red to green, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And boom, now we have all this visual information that's not tied to character perspective. This is just audience information right here. Yeah, it's almost like in the phone call prior to this scene, you're giving the audience a checklist. Yes. And then they've got that in their mind, even if they're not actively thinking about it, right? Because they're more likely just thinking about, like, how fast is, is Jack driving? Um, what did Toon Man just say? How are they going to tell the bus driver what he needs to know, etc.? But every time one of those things, the speedo goes past 50, goes back towards 50, the light on the bomb turning on, you're just, the checklist in your back of your mind is just going one point to the next and saying, like, we got that, we got that, we got that. We're, now we know exactly what's going on. We know what's at stake. And it's it's very effective. And, I mean, you mentioned earlier that this movie just moves. And it's very straightforward in its sort of um, explanation of action and stakes and what's going on. And I think probably being a director of photography lent Jan DeBont to making a movie like that. A movie with very little fat. There's not a lot of, like, this is a scene for an actor to have a monologue or this is some exposition just left right here on its own. I think his experience really helped him to produce a movie that's very streamlined because it's all based around these camera techniques and like how quickly can you get this information across? And he would know how to do that. Yeah, I'd say between him and editor John Wright, this movie comes together mm-hmm. really, really well visually. It's it's impressive information deployment uh, from a visual standpoint only. 
And I, I always wonder about a first-time director, even if you're very experienced, even if you've DP'd for all these amazing directors, I still think you need a good editor to reel in your your vision from a first-time movie as a first-time director. Mm-hmm. I don't know that. This is pure speculation on my part, but my guess is that John Wright had a big part in trimming and shaping all these scenes too. Um, well, and that's all going to make or break any any given sequence, yeah. right? Because like, they, they would have tons of footage, and even if it was specifically storyboarded, which I'm not sure it was, but I would say if a DP is running the movie, be, there's got to be some sort of visual framework be at my play guess too. before you're shooting. Um, but I didn't find anything in the research for Me the neither. record. Um, uh, yeah, I think you make or break the tension every time is in the edit. It doesn't matter what yeah. you filmed. Filming is is above that or to the left of that in the flow chart, however you want to call it. Uh, so, yeah, Joe Wright and DeBont working together, I think, made a movie that just the energy continues. The, the, the stakes and the anxiety and the tension continue to ratchet up. You have a couple key moments of where you sort of let it crest and and hang out because obviously there's a great rise and fall within the bus itself and then rise and fall between the action sequences but um they they get so much across and and this is where it becomes difficult to talk about in a podcast we were doing sort of video um setting it'd be easier to just talk about the expert mix of shots that they use to create a seamless experience you have enough of seeing keanu in the driver's seat and driving mixed with um first person camera that's like down on the road like at the tires level um shots from outside the bus shots from inside the bus shots from sam's perspective shots that have toon man reacting all this stuff that tells you what you need to know tricks you into thinking they're driving at least 50 miles an hour on the freeway and even just little things like i love like there's um they pull around to this to the passenger side like the not the driver's side of the bus and they're shooting from within the bus, so Keanu in the car is, like, vignetted by the circular long bus window. Yes, yeah. And you see the car moving forward and back, and it really sells how difficult it would be to match your speed so that your face is lined up in this little skinny Yeah, because the like camera that, that frame makes... is nicely positioned with the door of the bus frame nicely, but then Keanu's face is moving past and behind it it keeps Mm -hmm. moving back and forth and yeah i do think it's really good visual aid to show or trick you into thinking how fast they are going Mm -hmm. it from my understanding they did use pretty high speed chases relative to how a lot of stunt work is done today like they did actually Mm -hmm. have vehicles going at a decent click compared to now but i yeah obviously they're not actually going 50 miles an hour while they're doing these stunts i think they said it was 15 miles an hour when they do the stunt of Keanu jumping from the Jaguar into the bus. Which is still nuts. It's still Um, an amazing stunt, and Keanu did it. He wanted to do it. They said, we'll give you the training, and then they said that he was ready, he could do it on his own, and he did it. Uh, And he had to do it twice, I guess, and uh, nailed it. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I had read is that Jandabont didn't expect Keanu no, to do it. No, he did not. And so Keanu, leading up to this movie, was mourning um, his friend River Phoenix, who had died right. recently. They had been in uh, My Own Private Idaho a couple years before, which is maybe Keanu's only good movie, as far as most people are concerned, between this and Point Break. His other high-profile one was Dracula, which 
I'm sorry to the three or four people, the weirdos out there who voted for it. It would have been a fun discussion, but it, it did not stand up to the landslide victory that was speed. Um, but sorry, so Keanu was mourning Phoenix. I guess they make it sound like Jandabont didn't want to put too much on him, especially not stunts where they could just have a stunt actor do it. So they say, they say that Keanu practiced this stunt in secret. He wow. worked with some of the stunt crew and did it without Debont knowing, just so that when he showed up and said, I'm going to do it, he could try to make Debont comfortable in letting him do it. That makes sense. Um, but I, I love it as a culmination of the sequence because I don't think it's not until right before he does the jump that he says, I have to get on that bus to Toon Man. So it's not like he hangs up the phone and then calls Harry, and he's like, I'm going to get on the bus. And Harry goes, how are you going to do that? And he's like, I'll figure it out, and hangs up. Like, there's nothing corny like that. He's already moving. He just knows he has to get to the bus. But I think in the back of your mind, you're like, how is he going to get on this bus? It's over 50. It can't stop now. How is this going to happen? So you know that's where this is going, and you just need to see how it happens. And, I, I again, I love that the jump is not... It's not confident. It's not seamless. It's not graceful. And it's not a nice he jump. He almost even. doesn't make it. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. He, it it looks kind of hokey, but you're like, well, what what would I do? And it I think it lends to that every man pedestrian level action. It does look so, so believable in a way that it's not flattering to Jack as like this mm-hmm. heroic character. He's the way his legs kind of slip off the bus and scuff the road a bit. Um, you can tell that if you've ever been on a public bus before you know that that's actually like a series of steps there so he's Mm -hmm. jumping on the steps not just like a ramp or anything so it's not graceful he probably clocked his shin you know all these things go through my head yeah i'm watching that jump i would i would you know if it looks hokey to you i would the next time you're in the car keep an eye on when you hit 15 miles per hour and then just like look out your side window look at how fast things are moving by it's fast enough to make that a scary jump to yep. make especially not as a trained stuntman at that point this is you know this is pre-matrix this is pre where i think keanu really developed a, a, a reputation for getting into his own stunts and and really investing my in guess it. is this is where but this is sort of again this, this is the beginning of that persona i think yeah so um and i think i in the behind the scenes, there's a separate, a second angle of the jump onto the bus that's not in the movie, and you can see like so he it's like designed like a real bus. Like he jumps and his arm actually he lands and he grabs the pole that you grab on when you hop on the mm-hmm. bus. Like that's where his hand lands yeah. when he makes that jump. It's pretty cool that they didn't even like yeah. remove the metal pole from the jump area. He literally jumps and grabs that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't sound like they made too many changes to the bus itself no, nope. to have it like better suit actors right like as, as we said like there are buses that they chopped in half that they can put camera rigs into and things like that or remove parts of the roof but as compared to i mean there's the very the the sort of recently popular bus fight scene in the marvel movie shang chi okay where if you look at the i'll link to the corridor crew breakdown of that fight most of like you know the yellow poles that are all throughout a bus that you can hang yeah. on to right all almost all of them in the shang chi one were cg yeah just so yeah. that they had room they had room for people's elbows and for one person getting past another and things like that it doesn't sound like they did any modifying like that on this um and obviously replacing in cgi in 1994 would be nearly impossible they did but though i'm just saying like movie. i don't think they rounded the edges no so. they 
They did yeah. not. It looked like a very accurate real bus. Someone who's been on a bus, many, many buses. Yes. Um, yeah. And I mean, so otherwise, like uh, the way that they shoot this stuff, I did just want to mention as sort of a callback to, we talked about telephoto lenses a lot in the last um, episode. And I think they play a big role in this too. Because as we mentioned, telephoto lenses exaggerate um, movement from left to right and right to left, right? As, as you sort of pan around or also because they bring your, your background forward, they'll make, you know, the, the highway in the distance or the guardrails on the other side of Toon Man's car or the cars moving past the bus at different speeds all look like they're going way faster. So that's how you're shooting at 50 miles per hour. And it looks, it sells like it's 50. And something we didn't mention about telephoto lenses on the Point Break podcast was ju is just that when you're shooting on a telephoto lens and you're mobile, it's much harder to keep a telephoto lens stable than a prime lens or than a wide angle lens because you have so much mm -hmm. more of a wide plane on a wide angle lens that... It, you don't see the shifting of the camera movement as much. It's not as dramatic as when you're on a long lens uh, that over a long yeah, distance. It's similar like, yeah. If, if you want to see, a, I think, a, a straightforward example of what we're talking about here, because we are locked in an audio format, take out your phone, get the camera open, and then zoom it all the way in, like the full digital zoom and on try your and hold phone. It still. And just try to try to hold it still on something that's the other side of the room or like through the window across the street. And you see that your your handshake, your your breath, anything like that is more readily affected because you're just so zoomed in as you would be on the telephoto. And lens. so I, I'm not going to take away any credit from the DO, the credit, the DOP, Andre Barkowiak, because mm -hmm. the guy has some decent credits under his belt. Nothing like the other people we've mentioned so far. Have, uh, who have are more of a part of Jan DeBont's regular team, but I think he hired a DP that would let him get in on the action too. Because in all the behind the scenes, it's Jan on the camera that I saw. He's yeah. either looking into the camera while they're shooting, or he's the one shooting it. And so I don't know at what capacity the DOP on set, like I said, his name's Andre Barkowiak. Uh, I don't know to what extent he was actually D like opping the camera. So. I mean, mm -hmm. y if you hear Jan DeBont is directing a movie and it's his directorial debut, I'm guessing he's shooting a lot of this movie. Yeah, my 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 guess, entirely unfounded, is that you know the studio would say, "Well, we're going to get you a DP because you're supposed to be exactly. a director." And if if the DP needs to be doing something like setting up a camera, even if it's under your direction, you need to be able to go talk to an actor. Or yeah, something, um, right. Like you can't you can't be doing both. It's very rare. Like. Who, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson at this point has like nom de plumes for his DPs that are just yeah. him, but that's pretty rare. It's almost just him. Soderbergh, Zack Snyder, too, right? recently. Oh yeah, he I didn't just know that. did Army of the Dead on his own. Was I think that just it was him? just him where he got those he got those stupid dream lenses that made everything almost entirely. If, it, if he did have a DP, they weren't in agreement with him. I bet. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a good effect. For one thing, it's wild to do most of an action movie in, like, what what was I the think one point on one that? like point nine no one one because it was something that I, it I can't even do one. on any of my lenses. <laughs> I think it was yeah. f one one. Anyway, we're getting really really in the weeds on uh, on on f stops uh, for lenses. <laughs> um, 
But in general, I mean, I think I've covered everything I want to say about that scene. I love that you have Toon Man. He's got that full arc. I think it's very impressive how DeBont and the DP shoot this scene and keep it moving fast. And uh, and then Keanu's super impressive. And this is probably like, as you said, this is likely the birth of sort of his persona as someone who will start doing his own yeah. stunts and be right on I, camera. I would imagine Jan DeBont played a huge role in creating what Keanu is now. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, because that's one other thing I wanted to say. Like, again, since Point Break, he hasn't had a ton of success and not at all in the action realm. So to to go with him, I mean, I guess Baldwin, Stephen Baldwin turned this down. Um, but he turned down the first script because he was like, that's John McClane. I don't want to try to be John McClane. And then, you know, they eventually... I think for everybody, they went a couple down their list and ended at Keanu and Sandra and uh, and Dennis Hopper and Joss Whedon changed the script to suit them a little bit better working with DeBont and I think uh, I think all of that really paid off. In in the behind the scenes thing that I was watching, it was pretty funny because they were like, Keanu has all of the potential to be like a big movie star. He's got a great look. He's got the right attitude, mm-hmm. and it's like they're talking about him yeah. in such an old context where he's not like a superstar yet. And even though yeah. I know he hasn't done too many things, but he has done Bill and Ted. He has done. He's just coming off Dracula. He's done Point Break. Even mm-hmm. at this point, they're still not treating him like he's an up and comer star. It's almost like he's yeah yeah he's a surprise. He's gonna surprise people. I think. And I don't have like the hand like or the in the moment context of all this, but it really seems like they yeah. were trying to fluff him up to be something more after this, mm-hmm. rather than basing it on what he's already done. Yeah, and I mean, after this, you have, I mean, you got five years to the Matrix, and in between there, there you've got Johnny Mnemonic. Again, very interesting sort of arc to his career, because you would feel that there must be something else leading up to Matrix, but, like, it's really this, and he just keeps trying a whole bunch of other stuff, but... he. Yeah, anyways, I, I do I, I just think this movie works so well and it was such a surprise going back to it and frankly a surprise that the Matrix didn't win the vote because I thought it was a shoe in. But maybe I'm living in a bubble of people who uh, who love the Matrix as much as me and Speed's got a little bit more of that pedestrian appeal. Yeah, I credit our listeners for picking Speed because I, I did not think it was gonna win either. But this was, in my opinion, much more fun to talk about than a lot of the other options on that list. Yeah. I know, I know yeah, you're crestfallen about the Matrix, Tim. But I'm sure the Matrix will come back in one <laughs> way or another. It's a, it's a, it's just slightly too important in film history for us to uh, avoid for the rest of the. Yeah, podcast. we'll see. It could be a fun game <laughs> avoiding well, that, the Matrix. Uh, yeah, just seeing how many times the Matrix comes to right. a vote. Um, yeah, when we, we get to Hugo Weaving movies, <laughs> we'll see how it does. Um, so Tay, do you have a, a shout out for uh, Speed? Uh, so my shout out this week is, I call, I've always called him Eyebrow Man, uh, but it's an actor who I've liked mm-hmm. in a lot of uh, David Lynch's stuff. His name is Patrick Fisher, Fischler. Um, and he, I love Patrick yes, Fischler. Uh, I've just always, I can't not look, when he's in, in the frame, I can't look at anything except for this guy's eyebrows. Uh, it's impossible for me. I don't know how he gets cast because he's so distracting to look at. 
but I, I've always loved him when he pops up in movies because he's so recognizable. And he's just in this first opening elevator scene, and he's the guy that they're kind of getting mad at for pushing the wrong button in the elevator. Yeah. And it's like, obviously, he had nothing to do with the elevator stopping, but just the little jabs. And there's a, it doesn't stop at just one. There's like a couple that are like, what button did you mm-hmm. push? <laughs> and Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's a funny little yeah. gag, and, and you're 100% right. Every time this guy shows up, I'm like, Patrick Fischler. Right, and you just say, and then I think about him being in, mate, like top three most disturbing scenes I've ever seen. He's in that that diner one in Mulholland yeah. Drive, which I hope we get to at some point. Oh boy! I know you and I will have fun when we do a Lynch <laughs> month. I don't know where to put it and when to put it, but we'll we'll get there. It'd be maybe this this season would be fun to start start some Lynchian with some Lynch. stuff. Yeah, um, you know the listeners can vote for Dune, and we can do Mulholland <laughs> Drive or something like really that. torture the <laughs> listeners with a non. We're well, with well, an audio podcast on yeah. Mulholland Drive, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll see if we can get your buddy Parker on to talk Dune. I think it might be his favorite movie ever. Shout out to Parker if you made it this this far into the Speed podcast. Oh, don't shout him out. That'll just boost his ego. <laughs> uh, okay, so my shout out, very minor thing, but I think it makes sense uh, in a movie directed by an otherwise uh, DP for the rest of his career. When Keanu's talking to um, Hopper... Uh, after he blows up that Venice bus, there's a beautiful shot where the the payphone has this like stainless steel reflective surface right on the front. It makes it easy to clean and wipe down. The flames from the bus are reflected in the stainless steel. And it's such an over-the-top shot to just be like, we really want to drive home that Keanu or Jack just saw like his friendly neighborhood bus driver die in a fiery accident. That now he's talking to the villain. There are these flames that are reflected in, in the in the payphone. I just thought it was a great shot, and obviously uh, you get that from someone who's who's a DP directing for the first yeah. time. Stuff like that. Explosions the in the reflection. No more explosions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, just more and more. But I really love that. Um, and with that, we'll go into some recommendations. Mine is based again. The reading I did in the research about the production of this was that I guess the scriptwriter Graham Yost, his dad had told him about a movie from the 40s or 50s that was about an unstoppable train or like a, a train that couldn't be slowed down. And he conflated it with, I guess, a, a Akira Kurosawa short that's about a train that has a bomb on it, which uh, I definitely want to check out. Or maybe a short or a feature, but like they, there's some way they described it in the research. I'll link it. Very cool. That made me think of Tony Scott's 2010 movie, Unstoppable, with uh, Denzel Washington and Chris Pine. And I got to be honest... For years after this came out, I would have never considered watching that movie because I, I, it just feels so like pulpy action movie to be like they can't stop this train. How are they going to stop the train? Isn't and then Quentin Tarantino listed it as one of his top ten movies of the yeah decade. I saw that and I was like well I guess I have to watch it and he's like this movie it just kind of doesn't slow down it does it sets the stakes in the first fifteen twenty minutes. And then it just keeps going and keeps ramping up. So I'd say exactly the same flavor, but, you know, uh, Tony Scott style camera movements, um, which can be a little tiring. I know, Tay, you're not a massive fan no. of them, but th- this movie, this movie's tons of fun. The same type of fun, I'd say, is speed okay. in general. But no, you don't get any Howard. I remember. It, no, no, you go. I'm all <laughs> I just remember being really thrown off by the poster where they really, they like, put extra color in Chris Pine's eyes. And I was like, which is unnecessary. Yeah, you really don't need to photoshop that cover very much to make it appealing mm-hmm. and yet 
he looks like Prince Charming on the cover or something with like electric blue fire eyeballs. They really turned up the uh, the saturation. Yeah. So I always was kind of turned off from the poster. And then, like you said, I'm not a huge Tony Scott fan across the board. I like some of his movies, obviously. He makes good ones. But his particular choices in camera movement aren't my favorite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what's your recommendation? Uh, I'm picking... Uh, be, my connection is John Wright, the editor of Speed. Also, before this, directed... Er, edited The Running Man, which I think is one of my favorite underrated Schwarzenegger movies. Um, so The Running Man came out in 1987, uh, directed by Paul Michael Glazer, who was Starsky in Starsky and Hutch. Yeah, oh, I know. interesting. Very cool. And uh, it's also, uh, it's set in the far-flung, distant, apocalyptic future of 2019. That's right, yes. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> it's, it's about a cop who becomes involved in a futuristic game show or television game show. Um, it's got a great dystopic vibe. Uh, mostly my connection to speed though is how they shoot action, how they were willing to put the camera into explosions. Uh, the way that this movie is shot is very similar to a lot of the movies that John Wright and Jan DeBont were kind of connected to. Uh, so I think it just fits nicely. If you like speed, if you like even the worst Schwarzenegger movie you can think of. If you even like Schwarzenegger in that, I guarantee you'll find something in The Running Man. I get it if you're really not into Schwarzenegger, then you won't like any of his stuff, but this is one of my personal favorites. I own this one, and I watch this one probably the most out of all Schwarzenegger movies. That's wild, because I haven't seen it in a long time. I got nothing against it, but it doesn't rank up there that high for me, so I think I got to return it. To me, it's this in Total Recall. We're right there. Yeah. Oh, man. Total Recall. Well, on that note, we're getting into some aliens next month in July, because if you're keeping track, uh, the second episode in July will be episode 30, which is another potluck, which means we're going back to Denny, and this time we're going to talk Arrival, right? So on that topic, we're going to do a listener vote for some alien movies. We've obviously got a lot to pick from. We might do Signs. Uh, I might I might get Taylor to talk about Contact, and we can talk about how much of a mixed bag that movie is. Uh, almost certainly going to get Starship Troopers in there because we'd love to talk for Hoven. Uh, what else do you think could show up on that list? Oh, we, uh, you know, I really like that newer one, The Vast of Night. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very cool. I think an Amazon Prime. Yeah, production. you know, there's um, so very, very there's so many movie. cool ones that we could choose from. So we're still putting together that poll for you guys, but. Maybe maybe under the skin. Hey, I maybe. mean, I'm talking yeah. top ten of the decade, Tarantino. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> so, yeah, keep an eye out for that listener vote. It'll come out a couple days after this episode drops. You guys will pick a movie, uh, an alien movie that we're going to talk about, and then we'll do Arrival in the second half of July for our potluck. Uh, just confirming the guests there, but it'll probably, it'll 99% be a, uh, a familiar face. Uh, another Denis fan? Uh, probably, yeah, I think probably a well-known, well-documented Denny fan on this podcast. We're just sorting out the date, uh, uh, but uh, I think I think you'll recognize who's going to show up and talk about Arrival with and us. And we're very excited to do that. Um, More Denny. Yes, absolutely. But uh, in the meantime, I guess you just say, you know, uh, anytime you hop on the bus, just uh, just be ready. You might have to drive it. You might have to deal with a gunshot wound. Uh, even if you're not driving the bus, uh, Keanu Reeves might come along and, uh, and carjack you. Beware of thumbless Dennis Hoppers. <laughs> Bye, everyone. We'll see you next time.